Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, May 26th. We begin with yesterday's City Council vote to ban conversion therapy. We'll get reaction from Ward 3 Councillor Jyoti Gondek. Next up, we catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us the latest on the CPC leadership race, including an update on the Peter McKay campaign. Children may be struggling with feelings of abandonment and loss of security in their lives thanks to the pandemic shutting down schools, which means they could be grieving what was before the coronavirus crisis. We speak with an expert on early childhood studies. Then we hear about the massive impact COVID-19 has had on the hotel industry and what steps are being taken to reopen, ensuring that guests and staff are safe. We hear from the VP of Operations at Kananaskis Mountain Lodge. And finally, it's a chance for you to make history today. We get details on why the Glenbow Museum wants to hear the pandemic stories from everyday Calgarians. 710, the conversion therapy ban has been passed into law. So what exactly does the city have the power to do if an organization is caught performing conversion therapy? We're joined by Ward 3 Councillor Jody Gondek this morning to find out more. Hi, Jody. Good morning, Sue and Andrew. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for being one of the councillors leading the charge on this. Tell us how the final vote went down yesterday. I know there was some concern about possible amendments. They ended up not being passed, correct? That is correct. Um, For the initial first reading, it was a unanimous vote to move forward with the bylaw the way it has been written and presented by administration. What happens then is if you wish to make any amendments, you do it when we do a second or third reading. That's been a little bit complicated for people. Um, what was good is that when the amendments were brought forward by a couple of members of council, they weren't fully supported to make the changes. So we approved the bylaw intact. However, one member of council did vote against it on second and third reading. So it was a final 14 to one vote to approve the ban. That one no vote, it's known it was uh, Joe Maglioka. Did he explain why he refused to vote uh, to ban conversion therapy? He did. Um, At committee, he gave a very heartfelt speech about growing up in uh, an immigrant household. And he said, you know, love is love and we should treat everyone equally. What he said yesterday when he brought his amendment forward is that he felt we were trying to do the work of the federal government. He felt that what the definition um, reflected in our bylaw was not in line with what the federal government's proposing. And that was the position that he took. All right, well, we'll move on from that part of it. And I'm curious, Jody, can can the city take away a business license? That was the talk at the beginning of this. Could the city take away a business license if an organization goes against the law and practices conversion therapy? You know, what's interesting is that was um, a question from a lot of people. They wanted to know exactly how this would roll out. So I took the approach of asking administration yesterday, give us an example of what would happen. What would have to happen in order for a business to be found, yeah, let's say guilty of practicing conversion therapy. So the way it works for us as a municipal jurisdiction is someone would have to come forward with a complaint saying I have been um, put through conversion therapy by a local business or a church group that is offering this as a business and uh, or I I have some reason to believe that this is happening And then our bylaw team would go and investigate and they would, you know, they would do the steps that they would do with any bylaw infraction and go to that business or go to that place that's offering the service and have a look at what's happening. And depending on what they uncover, they could take away a business license, they could deny a business license if it's just being applied for, or they could issue a fine. So it is really quite thorough of a process and it is an investigation that has to get done. 
you mentioned the business aspect, but what about when it comes to churches? How could the city penalize a church if they're caught uh, performing conversion therapy? Andrew, I'm glad you asked that. That has been on a lot of people's minds. We had a overwhelming amount of messages coming in from people of faith saying, please don't take away my human rights. Do not take away the right of our church to preach what is in our scriptures. And that is not something that is happening in this bylaw. I want to remind everybody, this bylaw very specifically targets conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere in the bylaw that it says you can't give a sermon about what is written in your holy book. It doesn't say that anywhere. You could give a sermon, you could have a group conversation about it, people can chat about whatever it is they wish to, but it is the moment that you say to someone, I can offer you support through counseling or therapy, but I'm going to judge you and say that how you feel and how you identify is wrong and we will change it. That kind of a process is something we won't accept. Jyoti, a a very powerful response coming from Calgary Pride last night after the decision saying Calgarians took a stand on the right side of history today. Conversion therapy was sanctioned fraud, abuse and torture. People who delivered these so-called services perpetuated and profited off self-hatred and pain. No more, not in our city. Why were you and Evan Woolley and some of the other councillors who were super vocal on this? Why did you think it was so important not to wait for the federal government to come up with a plan? Well, it was, and I have to give full credit here, Councillor Woolley, Councillor Craw, Councillor Farrell and I that came forward with the original notice of motion. Mayor Nancy backed it as well. We felt it was absolutely critical to say that in a place like Calgary, where we are a tolerant society and an inclusive society, we have to put an end to this. And you know what? If we have to wait for the federal government to do anything, (laughs) who knows how long it's going to take. This should be a no-brainer for them. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's taken this long was really disappointing. If and when the federal government rolls out their ban, um, you know, or a package when it comes to uh, you know, tackling conversion therapy, would it look different? Would it change the city's uh, uh, approach? Well, there is a comparison between um, what the feds are proposing and what we've done, and it's available on the appendix that's attached to the bylaw. And there's only a couple of words that are different. So the fact that they've only got it to a discussion phase um, gives me some hope that they will look at what we've done based on the incredible research that our uh, administrative team did. Maybe they will incorporate our bylaw because it actually makes a lot of sense. Maybe they'll use our definition. But the fact is, they're just farming it out right now. They haven't made any decisions. Well, we thank you for what you did, and thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you guys very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Ward 3 Councillor Jyoti Gondek. It's good to see that business is still being done during this time of pandemic. This was on the list. I wasn't sure where it had gone because since March 14th. It has been talked about um, forever. Oh, we've talked about it as a pandemic, but we talked about it, talked about it, and then didn't hear much. So, And you know what? There were, there were more than 1,500 written submissions received by council with people sharing really deeply personal perspectives on this particular bylaw. And, uh, you know, I think it was really key that it, they did this openly and shared all the information that, that came out of leading up to this bylaw. Super important. They got 100 calls, 1,500 written submissions. So the community not at large yeah. here really was felt this was an important issue that they needed to deal with. People certainly felt strongly about it. Yeah. 6.09 on the morning news. Time to catch up with all happenings in Ottawa. Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson, joining us. We're going to talk COVID and the reopenings that are uh, you know, kind of staggered across the nation in a second, Mercedes. But first, I want to I backtrack to the West Block on Sunday and an interesting conversation with Conservative Party leadership candidate 
Peter McKay. An interesting time to be in a leadership race, even Mercedes, during this time of COVID-19. Mm. Yeah, and it was a a big debate inside the Conservative Party about whether they should keep going with this race or not. Uh, And Peter McKay hadn't even wanted to extend it. Keep in mind, they were supposed to be choosing their new leader at the end of next month. But instead, they will be choosing that new leader um, in August. And we'll find out probably by beginning of September. There's sort of this weird lag time between the vote and the announcement. Uh, But he got in trouble because he initially essentially said or or questioned if the real reason why people wanted to spend the leadership race was COVID-19. And he took a lot of very heavy criticism for that. People were saying, look, everyone's life is on hold. Um, It it needs to be suspended or extended. People can't meet. They can't vote right now. That said, they're not going to be able to have the big convention in August either to do this vote. Um, But here we are, and, and it's gotten closer and closer for Peter McKay. He had the lead. He was supposed to really be dramatic front runner and then he just kept having these self-inflicted wounds yeah. and mistakes missteps saying the wrong thing doing the wrong thing uh surprised a lot of people that somebody who's so experienced in politics would make those kinds of mistakes and now in the latest polling Aaron O'Toole is only six percent behind him and uh, Aaron O'Toole a lot stronger out your way in Alberta mm-hmm. and also in Quebec which we think could decide the race because of the way sort of the distribution of votes is set up Uh, Each riding gets one vote, and he and McKay are tied at 40% out there. One of the big issues for McKay is his French. I asked him about that. Are you bilingual? How's your French coming? He answered in French. Hmm. Uh, Well, you know, you can answer a question in French. Does that mean you're bilingual? He did not say that he was. So Mercedes, does Aaron O'Toole want to push back the the vote, or and and does does that even look like it could be a possibility? Well, not from where it is now. He did initially. He said, um, you know, let's let's take the time we need to. I mean, this was all unfolding when we really were in sort of um, the key part of COVID accelerating, where people were just starting to realize, going from saying, oh, there's this terrible virus in China, um, to that moment of realizing all of our lives were about to change here and, and change dramatically in ways that we'd never imagined possible for a, a very extended period of time. So he was much more supportive of saying, like, let's, slow down let's figure out if we need to pause the race uh they did technically pause the race although everyone's campaigning anyhow just not at public events um and so that was sort of a a sticking point that i I suspect garnered aaron o'toole some supporters who didn't like what they saw in mckay there they they didn't think that that was um a good decision or an appropriate decision to for him to be continuing um to want to go with the race when so much was going on and everything else in the country was shutting down Nice to know politics is still happening even <laughs> in this time of COVID nineteen. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's switch gears and talk about uh, you know the pandemic. And I know um, I'm sure you're aware here in Calgary we had our uh, reopening reopening yesterday. Mm-hmm. We were uh, ten days behind the remainder of the province. I'm wondering how Alberta stacks up uh, as far as the rest of the nation is concerned with with our process to move toward a reopening. Uh, are we ahead of the game? Are we in the middle? Where do we sit? You know, I'd say you're kind of in the middle, although Calgary's been a little bit further behind just because you've had a higher number of cases there. Uh, and as you know, the premier wasn't happy with the initial progress there on the reopening, uh, that the cases started to spike and he had some pretty serious concerns. I, I think, you know, the most advanced is kind of New Brunswick. Uh, they're in stage three. 
So, and they've sort of had some very unique ways of doing it. They were the ones who proposed the idea of kind of these bubble socializations where you could have uh, one other household who you socialized with. You were able to get back to having friends and family, uh, but you had to choose just one sort of situation to do that in. Um, Now, when it comes to BC, they're sort of the furthest ahead because they never fully closed. And they also had some of the lowest numbers, which is really interesting there. But they started going into social distancing and certain policies a lot sooner than other people did. Um, Here in Ontario, as you know, we've started to reopen open, but some of those measures are getting walked back because I suspect a lot of your listeners saw those photographs of Trinity Bellwood Park. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was just overrun with people. They were not social distancing. They were not six feet apart. There was tons of people not from the same household crammed onto the same blanket. Um, so this is sort of a, an interesting process of in each province, people reopening and then I, I think people are so cooped up they go too far, too fast, having to pull it back a little. Um, but uh, Everyone is hopeful that in every province, you know, this is going to happen as quickly as possible. But realistically, it is a bit of a roller coaster going forward. Mercedes, is the PM supposed to speak on anything big today? Is it an update on the the PPE supply that we're supposed to hear about across Canada? I don't have the details of what he's going into specifically this morning just yet. But, I mean, we haven't seen, I wouldn't anticipate huge announcements at this point. Um, And the reason is largely that the big programs they've rolled out have all been rolled out. Mm -hmm. Um, So these tend to be updates or adjustments that he's making. Uh, In a couple of cases, it hasn't even really been that related to COVID. Um, But that's sort of an interesting question that, that we're keeping an eye on, too, is how much longer do these PM updates go on? They've been very useful. They've given the press access, although <laughs> being able to ask a question and get one answered are not always the same thing as you've seen. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it, you know, it, it becomes at some point a risk for them politically to keep putting him up when people start asking questions about why did you do this, why did you do that, and they move out of the mode of that emergency response to the pandemic and start doing the post-analysis. But uh, so far, he's still out there with some sort of kind of little announcement every day. Yesterday was pretty substantial, but 10 days uh, of paid sick leave, although that that's uh, in many cases a provincial jurisdiction. So it'll be interesting to see how that one turns out. But it's something that has been on a lot of people's minds post-COVID about going back to work if they don't get pay and concerns from employers too, who don't want someone coming into work sick because they can't afford a sick day off and potentially spreading COVID-19. Uh, but it was a big win for the NDP. And interesting because so far the government has really been using the block to back them. And this was a case where they were very clearly catering to the NDP. Um, so they need them on side for some things in the future. And, and it'll be really interesting to see what that little maneuver was about. A lot of talk about the airlines, uh, particularly this week about, you know, not giving vouchers, but giving refunds. And there's uh, been petitions out there as well, I think over 75,000 signatures. Any word on whether or not the government is going to address these p- potential refunds from the airlines instead of credits? Nothing that we've heard so far, but I know that the airlines uh, have been, you know, in a lot of talks with the government and they're saying, look, we we have no money. We haven't been able to operate normally in months. And if we can't operate normally, um, their bills are absolutely massive. And, And that's not to in any way say that not refunding people's money is fair or a good idea. But because they have to fly these planes that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars in order to be able to pay for them, and they've not been flying, uh, their capital has just been flattened. 
So I wonder if the government is somewhat concerned where these are government, uh, pardon me, airlines that are already laying people off. Um, if they then say you have to pay all this money back, that's a further loss of liquidity. Uh, what does that do to jobs? So that's one of the things that the government has to think about is does it put more people on the CERB? Does it see more people no longer employed? But that doesn't change the fact that for, you know, so many, you know, thousands and thousands of Canadian consumers out there who bought tickets in good faith, who are not able to travel uh, because of government rules and the airlines are not flying and because of dangers to their health, uh, they need that money back. It was intentionally planned for something and now particularly with a lot of people losing their jobs, yeah. to not have that money in their pocket is a really big problem. Um, so this will be an interesting one for the government because, you know, it's at mm-hmm. their request that the economy has shut down. True so enough. there's some liability there, but they're already spending billions, as you know, on other projects. Always love to talk to you. Thanks for joining us, Mercedes. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. 6.20 now and children might be struggling with feelings of abandonment and a loss of security in their lives due to the pandemic shutting down schools, which means they might be grieving what was. Helping us figure out if our kids are feeling this way is the program head of early childhood studies at the University of Guelph, Humbert, Nikki Martin. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Sue. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I mean, we know kids are not great about being able to vocalize their feelings. So are there specific things we should be watching for? Yes, absolutely. You're right. Children aren't able to express their feelings with words like we are as adults in the same way. And so we have to be able to identify and look at their emotions and feelings or their emotions, feelings and behaviors. So oftentimes children will express things through, um, you know, uh, like an anxiety, maybe through bedwetting after that had been resolved or difficulty sleeping. Um, Perhaps they go back to thumb sucking after a period of time when they didn't. And it can be confusing for parents because we don't understand why that's the case. One of the other reasons is maybe clinginess. All of a sudden your your child is on your leg all the time and you don't understand why. But oftentimes it can also be anger. And that can be difficult for parents to be able to manage because when when a child feels angry, you wanna be kind of a, no, it's not like that. But it really is an expression of anxiety and fear and loss and grieving and any number of other things. It can also just be anger. (laughs) (laughs) But it's to be able to think about what is trying to use your empathy and perspective taking as a parent and feel with your child to understand what it is they're feeling from their experience and then provide them opportunities, you know, a response and opportunities to express those feelings. So we let them express uh, their feelings. What if it if it continues? Is there a point where we should uh, look at uh, talking with somebody about helping our children through these times, Nikki? Oh, absolutely. And especially depending on what the experience has been for the child. So children who maybe have experienced a death or there's been an illness and there's been a more significant loss than just not going to school or if there's abuse in the home which maybe the the educators or teachers offset that and provide a different experience whereas now the child's at home all the time and so you might be seeing increased expressions of um, anxiety fear um, anger so yes absolutely when it when your child is crying all the time when it feels like it's out of control and they're never having those times of joy they're never having those times of like love and connection and where they can just reduce the fear and anxiety um that's when you should you should seek help yeah absolutely and talk to a therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist to be able to understand 
um, and support your child. So keeping an eye on them and just, uh, you know, understanding that they're going through something just like the adults are too. Thanks for joining us, Nikki. Appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. That's Nikki Martin, Program Head of Early Childhood Studies at the University of Guelph-Humber. Now that we're moving into phase one of the reopening of Alberta's economy, businesses have, have to change the way they operate in this new COVID world, and the hotel industry is no different. So how will hotels do things now? Will people feel safe staying overnight? We're joined by the VP of Operations at Kananaskis Mountain Lodge, Graham Jenkins, to hear what's being done to keep staff and guests safe. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I imagine by now the hotel industry has been given some pretty strict guidelines by the province on how to operate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, things moved really fast. Um, We made the tough decision to close the resort on on March 26th. Uh, And really, you know, since that time, the leadership team's really been working through sort of what this new reality looks like, Uh, you know, staying abreast of all of the regulations and recommendations that are coming in. And really creating a plan, uh, given there was really simply no playbook, you know, prior to this, how to operate in this environment. So it's really been a collaboration effort between industry partners, hotel and restaurant associations, uh, government direction, and and really our own internal expertise on uh, what we've used to really create sort of our standard operating procedures. So, you know, we look at it as three sort of core pillars, uh, social distancing measures, Uh, prevention through increased sanitation, training, guest communication, and really finally uh, protection or PPE. Um, You know, so at the resort, some of the changes we've made that our guests can expect to see and ultimately feel safe returning uh, would be physical distancing. So we've reduced public seating uh, throughout the resort. Our restaurants are at 50% capacity based on the government recommendations. All tables are six feet apart. Uh, Signage throughout the resort. So the time you arrive, you've got clearly marked signage encouraging uh, you the importance of hand sanitizing, social distancing. We've marked all of the high traffic areas with floor signage and stanchion off those areas where potential lines could form. And ultimately provided hand sanitizer uh, stations throughout the resort for our people uh, and our guests. You know, another key aspect is we're able to use technology. Uh, so through Marriott, uh, guests can download that app. Not only can they communicate directly with our people without ever leaving the room, uh, they can use mobile key. They can actually log in, uh, book their room, get their key through their iPhone, and check into their room without even approaching the desk. Cool. Um, Incredible. Yeah, very cool. Same process when you check out. Uh, you can view your bill on your in-room TV. You simply come down to our express checkout station, and there's no need to approach any staff. Um, we've added our IRD menus or our in-room dining menus to our television. So that is a contactless process. Uh, when we deliver in-room dining, the guests are able to take that product right from the tray without ever having to approach uh, one of our individuals. So we know that COVID-19 has affected everybody's work environment and their workplace uh, has had changes in order to keep productive. I'm wondering about in the hotel industry as guests, we know what we see, but what about behind the scenes and staffing challenges? How has it affected your staffing? Yeah, great question. You know, I mean, typically a resort like ours, uh, we're going to run a summer season of about 300 employees. That recruiting process would have started right around March, right around the time that we, we decided to close. So obviously we've canceled that process. We've been able to retain about half that number. So about 150 people in our in-staff residence uh, while we work through this. Given the slow starts as we ramp up and restrictions get lifted, uh, we've been able to bring a core team of employees back to work. We knew that, you know, people are our strongest asset and we took an early approach that supporting them through this process is going to be really important. 
So we've been able to waive the rent collections for those that are on a leave of absence. We were providing three meals a day for them at no charge. And we've also covered all of their benefit costs. Um, on top of that, training is really key. So to go back to your point there, people want to see, feel safe, not only our guests, but certainly our, our staff. So training was really at the forefront of this. Um, through education, providing the right PPE, understanding what we're doing and how we're protecting them is ultimately going to want them to return to work. So as business restrictions lift and the property ramps up, we're no longer going to be focused on typically what a lot of the resorts in the Rockies would do through international hires, but we're going to go out to the local community and support the Albertans. Graham, what about people who are coming to the hotel? How, how do you make us feel safe that the room we're going into is clean? Yeah, great question. So we've developed our, in our standard operating procedure really what we call um, our detailed checklist. So we've got a top 10 high touch points in all of our guest rooms. So these are detailed lists using approved Health Canada products. Uh, all of our staff have been trained on this. In fact, if anybody wants to come back to work, it's mandatory that they're trained on these procedures. So not only do we have our enhanced cleaning for our guest rooms, our public areas, uh, and we've also removed a lot of the items in the rooms, uh, collateral and things that are sort of high touch points. So um, not only with social distancing measures, but really enhanced cleaning overall is going to give people that sense of comfort. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Graham. Thanks for having me. That is Graham Jenkins, VP Operations at Kananaskis Mountain Lodge. 849, the Glenbow Museum has a campaign underway called Dear Glenbow, and we're all encouraged to get involved. With the details, we're joined this morning by Jenny Conway-Fisher, Communications Director at the Glenbow. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Hey, thanks for joining us. So you and all the folks at the Glenbow, you want to know what about our lives during the pandemic? Well, uh, we're hoping that people will just tell us um, uh, anything they want, actually, about <laughs> what life is like right now. It's, it's funny because we're all, it's such a strange experience that we're all going through at the same time, and yet it's definitely having different impacts on different people. So I think everyone's story is going to be really individual and really different. And um, I think we've got some, some sort of starter questions to help people sort of conceptualize how to how to tell a story because a lot of people I, I mean even me I'm like well my life isn't kind of that very interesting right now but it's those small moments I think it's it's what is there something in your life that is is changing you for the better or for or making your life um, more interesting is it a pet is it an object is it a person that's making things um, worthwhile or is there something that you really want to hold on to that you've learned in this period that that's changed for you or that's made a difference in your life that you don't want to forget? Um, maybe there's something that you want the world to remember that you really hope that we hold on to as a society that, that I think there's lots of those things for a lot of us that we're thinking, you know what, this is our moment to actually take those things that have floated to the top, those, those ideas of, of sticking together and, and supporting one another. And, and maybe that's something that you want to tell somebody for, who finds your letter down the way, who opens it up and reads it and, and makes a connection across time and space. You mentioned somebody opening your letter and reading it. Uh, what are you going to, what's the ultimate goal as far as if, if you've got, you know, 10,000 letters in the next couple of months, what will be done with them? Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be amazing. Um, 10,000 letters. Well, the idea of this project is we didn't want to collect the letters and the stories and then lock them away in a vault for 50 years. We really want this project to be an active living project. We really, as we were thinking about ways that, that Glenbow could could note this moment and keep it and, and make sure that it's um, remembered, it was more about um, giving people a project and making people feel like they had something to contribute and, and, a, and a, 
positive role to play in in sort of transmitting this information and this experience. So it's it's more about um, discovery and sharing and maybe in two months, maybe there'll be an artist who comes and, and creates something out of these stories. And, or maybe there's an exhibition that can come down the line from a curator putting these ideas together and synthesizing um, different thematic stories that come out. Or maybe in a couple of years, there's researchers who want to know how people move through chaos mm-hmm. and, and crisis and, and want to learn from those personal stories. Um, museums often wait for people to come to them and say this object is important or a museum goes out and says that object is important but right now we really want people to tell us what's important it's not about us at all it's about it's about what people are going through and what people are feeling and and learning and seeing and and i think that's going to be a really important story love this now uh, just before we let you go i'm all about writing a letter by hand but you can do it electronically you can send it in any way shape or form so how do we get our info our letters to you and the glenbow well, you can definitely, we're definitely hoping people will write us physical letters because I think that, that physicality, that opening of a letter is really incredible and special and there's just an energy there between that object and that person on the other line. But you can also send us an email, uh, dearglenbow at glenbow.org, or you can post a social post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag dearglenbow and make sure you tag us at glenbow we're at glenbow museum so that we can find your post afterwards. Love it. All the details at glenbow.org. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for having me. That's Jenny Conway Fisher, Glenbow Museum Communications Director. 820, happy anniversary. It's very special. We would have, uh, you know, I would have bought you a cake, but social distancing. I got you a gift. You did? Yeah. What is it? Your your, your presence uh, is my gift? Sharpie. There you go. (laughs) And we found out uh, that today's our, it's such a weird world. It's our (laughs) friendversary on (laughs) Facebook, Sue. Who'd have thunk it? How, nine how long? Years, nine years as fra- it's been Facebook nine, friends. But it feels like a hundred. I mean, it's, it feels like it's <laughs> Plus, been a week. We have been friends for a long time, actually. We've known each other yep. in this media world for, for many, many years. Nine years on Facebook, though. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And look at us, eight months here. Yeah, eight months here on uh, the morning news. And uh, thank you for joining us because, you know what, it's been as much as it's it's, it's been a, a crazy uh, 10 weeks or so, 12 weeks in Very much quarantine. So. Uh, I'm glad that we could share this time with you because it's such a tumultuous time. So if you've been leaning on us and enjoying the program, thank you so much. Absolutely. And you know what? If you've been leaning on other people who've done great things in your community, we want to hear about it. It is the Community Champion program that we've got going right now along with calgary co-op we want you to let us know about somebody you've noticed who's gone the extra mile and deserves some recognition so we'd like you to nominate them as a community champion make it easy for you at 770chqr.ca and a good example would be uh, yesterday when we highlighted and we hear from the nominators a few times a week here on the morning news daryl dantis who was a wife maddie todd he said she's been a real champion she lost her job and it's been, uh, you know, a tumultuous time for everyone. But also, she is now a homeschool teacher by default with the school system down to uh, their special needs son. Amazing. And you know what? There are people in your life that are probably doing things that they think it's just what they do. But mm-hmm. you think, wow, you've done something pretty special and we'd like you to nominate them. One lucky community champion at the end will get a $350 gift certificate to Calgary Co-op. We'll deliver it right to their door via the 770CHQR community cruiser powered by bow west appliance so we want you to help us celebrate our unsung local heroes again i'm easy enough to go to 770chqr.ca you go down about uh, i'd say three inches on the page and you'll find contests 
You hit that tab. Mm-hmm. It breaks down community champions. We make it easy. And again, we highlight from the nominator's perspective because we we don't want the modest heroes to be talking. We want to hear why. Yes. Because a lot of them are just what doing their thing. Done. What they've done. What has been special that they've done for, for one person, for the community, just, you know, that we want to give them props for, for you know, stepping up and, and stepping out right now. Tell us your story and hopefully we can make a difference to those who have made a difference in our community.